0: Uh, and uh, normally what I do is I pray and I seek God for a, a number of uh, series or topics that I feel God is leading me to teach on or the church to focus on th- uh, for six months to, up, up to the whole year. Um, but I just felt uh, in the, to take an extended look at the Sermon on the Mount um, and kind of go through it verse by verse. And I don't really have an end time. <laughs> and that should scare you. <laughs> um, so I, I don't think I'll, I'll probably call it an end at a certain point. We'll see. Um, but the idea is to dig deeper into God's Word. And for two things one, of course, just to get out of God's Word, get out of the text, uh, you know, greater meaning, greater understanding. But I also really want a, a big part of this is I want each and every one here to be equipped on how to study God's Word and how to get things out of God's Word. So it's not good enough for you just to come and listen to a good message and get information, even revelation, and go home with. I mean, that's great, but that's not really the fullness of the purpose of what I'm called to do as a pastor. I'm called to equip you. And so what I, part of Sunday morning services is for me to preach a message or whoever's sharing to share and communicate truth. But uh, an underlying and actually more important part is to teach you how to discover truth from God's word and how to apply it in your life. Does that make sense? And I don't want us ever to forget that, that that's a, that's a vital part. And if, if it just ends up to where you come and listen to a speaker um, share some, uh, a great message and go home, then that's a spectator sport. Amen. All right? And we've failed. Right? And I, I don't want this church ever to just to, to kind of be at that level. It's, it's, some people are called it. It's fine. It's a great ministry. Uh-huh. But as a church, I believe as a local congregation, it's to equip you to be able to get stuff out of God's word. Sunday morning is like, you know, a big home cooked meal, <laughs> you know, that's just delivered to you. But along with this, I'm going to try to help you see um, you know how you can uh, unpack scripture and get understanding as well as application out of it and of course the Sermon on the Mount covers a whole range of topics and so we may still kind of promote different sections of the Sermon on the Mount as uh, as separate events or separate like mini-series but it's just gonna we're just gonna follow along the, the the course of the text and, uh, of course, to begin, you can't begin uh, a Bible study without looking at uh, the context. <clears throat> Whenever you, And so today I'm really going to be teaching, uh, and a lot of this I expect to be more teaching. I'm trying to put on my teacher hat, um, as opposed to preaching, which I'm, sometimes I try to be a preacher. Uh, and, and, and in order to understand any uh, scripture, you need to look at the context of the scripture, and the context just means the surrounding scriptures. All right, uh, the context of the of the text <clears throat> would be uh, the immediate uh, surrounding scripture. So, what 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 are the verses before and after? I mean, basically, what is being said in this portion of scripture? And you can't just look at one verse and 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 without and ignore the rest of what's around it it's it's generally in the context of something just like you wouldn't want to take you know one sentence out of a whole explanation and have your spouse use that one sentence against you would you or do you or do you or do you like doing that <laughs> no it's the same thing so we need to understand the immediate context and there's another thing called the general context and the general context is just a bigger context and that includes you know the whole chapter or a whole section if you're looking at the whole section of of a passage or the book <clears throat> um, um, and, and this morning we're just gonna be where I'm gonna give you an introduction to the book of Matthews what really I'm gonna do and the book and the author <clears throat> and then you have the cultural context uh, how, the, how the passage uh, was originally expressed in its culture, uh, what it means culturally um, um, to the time that it was shared or written, and how they understood it at their time. And so you get all of this information, it helps you, it, it equips you to then interpret it and apply it into the context of your life. And, and without that, you're just plucking uh, words written 2,000, 3,000 years ago, completely out of a cultural and uh, um, a literary context, and just shoving them into the 21st century, and that's that's really ridiculous. <laughs> you know, now the balance of the Word of God is living; it's alive; it's an act; it's active; and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's meant to apply to the 21st century. And so I'm not saying in any way that we can't take scriptures and apply them into this, this century because they were written for that purpose, okay? But you'll understand and you'll get a better application and interpretation of it. You'll understand how it fits in your life in the 21st century a lot better if you know at least a little bit about what was going on when it was written. Does that make sense? <clears throat> all right, and all of this information is really easy. You guys are spoiled. Say, I'm spoiled because yeah, you have every. You don't even have to buy it anymore. If you have internet, you can go online and get all the resources. Even when I started out, I had to go buy Bible dictionaries and commentaries and gorgandises and 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 paper, you know, books. Remember those? <laughs> and now, man, it's all on the computer, so it's really easy to get all of this information. Uh, a good study Bible. Online Bible resources, a good Bible dictionary, and Bible commentaries. There's tons of them available, many of them for free online. Remember, it's the Bible that's inspired, though. <laughs> this is the Word of God. And these other helps uh, uh, are give, help us understand the Bible and not vice versa, okay? So we don't use the Bible to understand the commentaries. We use the commentaries to understand the Bible commentaries may be right. The Bible is right. Okay? Good, important thing. So who wrote Matthew? Take a wild guess. <laughs> you know, it's, it really isn't too disputed. Although it never says in the, in the book that I, Matthew, wrote this, <coughs> like it does in some of the other books. Um, uh, but it, it's, it's always been assumed that it was Matthew. Matthew 9, 9... Um, Yeah, I have slides, don't I? Matthew 9, 9, Jesus, it says, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So the gospel of Matthew is kind of unique. It's written by a Jew. Matthew was a Jew. Uh, Two Jews about a Jew. All right. Matthew is written by a Jew. Two Jews about a Jew. Uh, uh, Knowing this helps us understand a big part Of the way, the style, and what Matthew chose to include in his gospel, he's addressing people familiar with Judaism, uh, both uh, people born and bred in Jerusalem or in in Israel, Palestine, uh, and the Gentiles living in a Jewish culture. All right, and so uh, the Jewishness, the Jewish influence, the influence of the Jewish culture in Matthew is significant. It's primary. Um, and it kind of sets the tone for the whole book. Matthew's author, his countrymen, the people um, um, that lived in that culture are his readers. but Jesus is the subject all, right? all the way through just like you know that's true of the whole Bible. you know Jesus is the subject of every book. Um, and all of the listings and, and we have the Bible it's in a set order uh, because um, by around you know, uh, the early church—I think I can't remember the date. Was it 300 something uh, AD? They all said, "You know what? This is the order of the books. This is the canon. Everyone is in agreement, and it was solidified and never disputed." Before that, but before that, there were different order. They would order the books um, in the in the early church. So even by the late 100, uh, 100 late 90s, uh, early 100s, there were collections of writings. Matthew was always placed first in the order of new testament books we don't know if that means it was written first or not it doesn't really matter Um, i have a quote from a commentary i like this kind of long follow along it's it's good the early church were conscious in a way few christians are today that their faith had its roots in judaism the issue of the relation between the Christian church and Jews remained a vital one, both for Christians' self-understanding and for their presentation of Christ to the non-Christian world. It is Matthew's gospel which more fully than the others provides a Christian perspective on this issue. All right? in, this, in its constant reference to the Old Testament... It's strong Jewish flavoring. It's explicit discussions of the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. It forms a fitting bridge between the Old and New Testament. It's a constant reminder to Christians of the rock from which they were hewn. And so if you think of Matthew being written for the specific intent of helping people bridge the gap between the Old and the New Testament, it really helps you understand why he emphasized or why the the things in in Matthew are, are placed in the order that they're placed and why they're emphasized in the way they are. And understand that when Matthew was written, it was probably, I personally think it was written around 60 AD or in the 60s. Uh, given the evidence that we have, <clears throat> there's some debate. Certainly it was written, most scholars agree it was written around eighty AD. It was actually written down and, and, and finalized, but it could have been as late as in the, the 90s. By this time, most most if not all of what we read, I think all of what we read in the book of Acts has already happened. All right? Now I'm not saying they didn't have uh that Matthew may have uh actually it's pretty well expected that much of it had been written in portions, but it wasn't compiled and established and published, okay, as this is the gospel according to Matthew until somewhere between 80 and 90 uh, A.D. But all the stuff that you read in Acts has already happened. And, and, and if, if you missed it, you missed out because they did a great job yesterday on the story of the Bible. And this coming week on Saturday, they're going to talk about the story of the New Testament. And so you'll get a chronological view of the new testament but acts takes place over several decades you know you can read it and you think it happens over several weeks but some of the chapters there's like 10 years in between and it doesn't tell you that don't you wish it did well that's what a study bible's for (laughs) all right so by this time when matthew was uh codified or or published let's put it that way as a common word um there were already churches all over the place there were mega churches Jerusalem had 3,000 members the first day, and God added to it daily, Alright. <laughs> people have an issue with megachurches. They say it's not like the original church. I'm like, what Bible are you reading, dude? The very first church had 3,000 people on the first day, and then they grew daily from then. What, what would you call that? There was also, the church in Antioch was just as big, if not bigger. The church in Ephesus is up to 30,000 people, they believe. All right. uh, yeah, and it was already happening at this time. <clears throat> uh, but in addition to that, there were many sy- synagogues where the Jews would meet and Paul would go and other uh, people would go and preach the gospel and they were converted or groups of, of uh, 20, 30, 40, 100 uh, would be meeting in synagogues, uh, worshiping Jesus Christ because they'd come to the Revelation um, or... Started in synagogue and then left the synagogue, and then there was just a multitudes of house churches everywhere, wherever the gospel preached. They would assemble together in their house, so you have churches of every order, uh, every size, um, already spread throughout all of Palestine, up into Asia, and even into uh, uh, um, uh, um, Asia Minor and into Europe at this point. <clears throat> and all of them were fully aware of their the roots of uh, that they they were rooted in Judaism. But they were confronted with the differences between Old Testament practices and the, and the requirements of of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were they were they were aware of, of these these conflicts, and they were also very aware of the rejection and the persecution. Uh, by this time, the the Jewish uh, religious leaders had uh, anybody that followed Christ were were considered outcasts, were rejected by their family. But they were also aware of the tremendous harvest that. Literally tens of thousands uh, of Gentiles were coming into the church and getting saved, and they we're seeing that um, wow, yeah, we were rooted in Judaism, but these Gentiles are so on fire. They're just wherever they go, they become Christian and and, and change their city. Matthew is a book; is the most quoted um, gospel of all the gospels. When you read other uh, non-biblical uh, early accounts of the church. Uh, um, almost always the quotes are from Matthew and so this is why many think it was the first of the written um, gospels because it was so it's so referenced all right, um, <clears throat> in other writings that we've discovered uh, through historical ex- excavation and it was written for the purpose uh, to help church leaders teach the story of Jesus Christ and for people to, uh, to, to, to uh, for their use in personal uh, devotion to so that they the story would be communicated accurately 45 percent of the book of matthew is found in mark 20 percent is uh in luke and uh 20 uh, in luke and 35 percent is unique to the gospel in other words and so there is a theory that uh, mark was written first and the other ones kind of used his as a, his gospel as a as the reference uh to write theirs no one really knows which one was first but they certainly uh, borrowed from one another because you know what they were all friends. <laughs> you know they collaborated, and uh, that was <clears throat> that was the point. And like all of the gospels, Matthew is not a chronological biography of Jesus's life. All right? We, from our modern day perspective, think that if someone writes an account of a person's life, they start at the beginning, they end at the end, and they pretty much put everything in order. You know. Um but in their day, that was not the right way to write. That was not the correct way the author um, an account of someone's life that would have been they would have gotten a, a failing grade if they'd turned it in and it was strictly chronological because things change you know over thousands of years um, <clears throat> and the the right way was to was to order the events and the teachings, the discourses within uh, the text um, to support the ideas, the order of the argument, if you will, or the order of the story. And so not only was it right, but it was proper uh, uh, literary technique for them to rearrange the order of events or the teaching or to emphasize one aspect and leave other things out because matthew's purpose was a little different than luke's and it was a little different than mark's and it was a little different than john's and so they have different emphasis and things are in different order on purpose okay it doesn't mean one's right and one's wrong it's just we're getting different perspectives does that make sense Okay, and a lot of people think it's strictly chronological and some of the things don't line up right um, <clears throat> uh, but that's on purpose and everything that happened in Jesus' life is not recorded we even have that in writing John said if everything Jesus did was written down there wouldn't be enough you know, uh, uh, paper in the world you know, to record it all and so they had to selectively choose portions that presented the story in a way that made the most compelling argument or, uh, or presentation of what what was true. And um, <clears throat> let me just read another quote. It says, In accepting that God intended His church to have four Gospels, not just one, Christians also recognize that each, each one of the Gospels, has something different to say about Jesus. It's only after we have listened to each in its individuality that we can hope to gain the full richness which comes from the stereoscopic vision or Quadraphonic sound, quadraphonic sound. Uh, there we go, the red. Um, the stereoscopic vision of Jesus is seen through four different pairs of eyes. <clears throat> and so this is the idea. You're getting four, with the four Gospels, you're getting four different um, um, perspectives on on, on Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching. So let's look a little bit at the emphasis of the book of Matthew, before we launch into the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, and actually next week I'm going to actually just kind of give you an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to actually look at, um, the next time I speak, it'll be the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll look at the first sections. But just the emphasis, what's the emphasis of the Gospel? Well, the classic understanding, and the classic uh, order to understand the Gospels, and every Christian really should know this, is Matthew presents Jesus as King all right it's clearly matthew jesus is king mark presents him as servant he comes as the servant he comes to serve luke he comes as the man he's a son of man um he comes as uh, human and in john he is the son of god <laughs> all the way through and there's a clear emphasis matthew 2 uh 2 uh, is the story of the uh wise men coming to uh, see jesus and it's only recorded in matthew that that little story about the wise men coming it's not in anywhere else in in scripture Uh, why because matthew included it because he wanted to bring attention to this aspect included right at the beginning of jesus and they come asking where is he who has been born king of the jews for we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And again, uh, just yesterday at the end of the Old Testament class, um, uh, the Israelites had returned from captivity in Babylon, and they had rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the wall. And they had, uh, many of them had returned and reestablished their Jewish culture and uh, Jewish religious practices, but there was one thing missing. And what was missing was a king. And they never had a king. And then uh, Matthew starts out with, here comes the king. The king is come. Yeah. And even the beginning, it starts uh, <clears throat> the genealogies of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, so I'll, I won't. I'm going to stick to my notes. <laughs> so uh, Matthew begins with the... Oh, yeah, no, it is, I am right. Matthew begins with a detailed lineology, providing that Jesus was the rightful heir of the throne of David. Uh, the greatest king of Israel. Okay, he starts out with this genealogy. Two things about the genealogy. One is that if you read through Genesis, you'll notice that you can break it in, and scholars break up Genesis uh, into divisions based on this same phrase. And this is the genealogy of the family of, boom. That's one section. The next section starts out, and this is the genealogy of the family of, and that's another whole section of the book. All right? And, And Matthew knew that. He was actually, he memorized, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you know, he, he had that all down, and he was writing to Jews, so starting with that phrase actually communicates to every Jewish person that, wow, he's saying this is, it's written in a way that this is a continuation of the Old Testament, in fact, he's, it's actually a parallel with the Genesis account, it's a new beginning, ah! It's like a new kingdom being started. Wow, with a new king. Yeah, Jesus. <clears throat> um, and in this genealogy, it clearly demonstrates, uh, because genealogies were extremely important in the Jewish culture. Everyone knew their ancestry all the way back to Abraham. Right? It was absolutely essential. If you didn't know that, you didn't fit in. And so he demonstrates Jesus' Jesus's genealogy as king, as a rightful heir to the throne of David, and as a rightful seed of Abraham. He's a descendant of Abraham. He begins by clarifying why. Because this is the most important thing in a Jewish person's mind. You don't start with this, you don't, you don't have my, my attention. All right. For us, it's like, what is this, all these names? I'm reading to the Bible, guys. How many are doing that, right? right. They put in a lot of names. (laughs) You know the details of the tabernacle? You know what? You know what my big revelation was? Every time now that I read somewhere in the Bible and I say, man, I wish they'd give me more details. Nope. I'm good. The one place where God gave all the details, I'm like, oh. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) If the whole Bible was written like that, man, we'd have to have a truck to carry it around. (laughs) So we see the genealogy coming up to Jesus, but guess what? After Jesus' genealogy, there are no more genealogies. Boom! (laughs) You know why? Because the purpose of all genealogies has been fulfilled. There's no more need for genealogies. The promise to Abraham has come. Boom. So we're done. We're done with that. Thank you, Jesus. We're New Testament believers. (laughs) And this brings the next point. Jesus is the fulfillment. I believe it's the uh, primary emphasis of the book. The essential key. It's another quote from the commentary guy by the name of France wrote it. Um, The essential key to all Matthew's theology is that in Jesus, all God's purposes have come to fulfillment. All of them. All of God's purposes are fulfillment. Every promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person Jesus Christ. You have to understand that if you will ever understand the Old Testament. It's in the person of Jesus. How is this going to be fulfilled? Look to Jesus and you'll find the fulfillment. It's in and through him. Uh, Let me read a little more. It says, uh, 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 put simply, we are talking here about fulfillment, not only of Old Testament predictions. And, and I read that, I thought, that's what most people probably think when we talk about Jesus' as fulfilling, fulfilling Old Testament predictions. No, 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 no. Yeah, he fulfilled all the Old Testament predictions, but that's not just what we mean by fulfilling the Old Testament. It goes far beyond that. All right, this, this uh, commentary writes... Uh, We are talking here about fulfillment, not only of Old Testament prediction, but of Old Testament history and religion, including events and institutions which in themselves carried no explicit reference to the future. Okay, So everything in the Old Testament, even if it wasn't predictive in its origin or in, in its original sense, all right, was speaking of an uh, an illustration, a foreshadowing of Jesus. Right? And he comes as the fulfillment of the whole uh, of God's purpose uh, as seen throughout, uh, as God's purpose, really, uh, in, in the creation. Uh, it's a good idea. Yeah, the, the temple was... Uh, uh, um, that's a good example. It was built to, to worship uh, God or the tabernacle, but in it we can learn so much of the person of Jesus Christ. Here, the ark was not necessarily meant to be a predictive element of Christ, but here it was. It was made of of wood, and covered in gold. So it speaks of Christ's humanity, all right. But it also cre- uh, gold symbolizes divinity, and so we have an ark made of gold, and wood, humanity and divinity combined in one and it was the uh, uh, the ark was the place where god met men all right it was through the ark that we encountered uh the the presence of god was in the ark and so there's it wasn't predictive but it predicts you know you can take anything in the old testament just about and see how it, it it points everything points to jesus christ jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of messiah course, that's the main uh, emphasis in uh, the gospel. And I'm going to quote from Matthew 16, 16 through 20, um, Jesus interacting with his disciples. um, And Jesus said, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered right on. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples not to tell uh, tell no one uh, that he was the Christ, because it wasn't quite time. You know, Peter got it. Wow, he got the revelation. He understood the real nature, the real person of Jesus. But it's not enough. Uh, when you read this, it's not enough just to understand that Peter got it. That's not the purpose that Matthew wrote the gospel uh, was that you could understand that Peter got it. You need to get it. Each and every one of us needs to have that same revelation. And and the purpose of the Bible is to communicate the revelation so each of us understand that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is my Messiah. We need to have the same experience that Peter had. Amen? All right. So, you know, the question is, have you had that personal experience? And some of you have, many, most of you probably have. But if you haven't, seek after it. Seek after it. Is Jesus your Messiah? Is Jesus your king? Matthew wrote this to communicate that Jesus is the Messiah, my Messiah. The king that Israel had been waiting centuries for, finally arriving. The whole Old Testament let, pointed to, have you received him as your king? Have you received him as your Messiah? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, Matthew 5.17. This is the beginning. This is actually, we'll look into this a little more. But this idea of fulfillment is uh, touched on, and, and, and fulfilling the law specifically. Uh, Matthew five seventeen says, "Do not think I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." Um, <clears throat> the The Jewish uh, religion, Jewish culture, sought righteousness through the law, and, and Jesus said. I haven't come to abolish that but to fulfill it to bring it to its completion to bring it to its 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 intended purpose uh, to actually fulfill the law and he's the, he's the only one to have lived fully by the law and it's only through him that anyone can live righteously before god fulfilling the law does that make sense Paul explains it in this way in uh, Romans chapter 10. <clears> he <throat> says, uh, uh, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, and he's referring there to the natural descendants of Abraham, the, 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 that, that uh, um, uh, ethnic group, uh, is that they may be saved. For I bear the, them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge but they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Listen to this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul's explaining what Jesus said that uh, he came to fulfill the law. Christ is the end, the fulfillment of the law for all who believe. And so we who believe come into the fullness of everything that the law promises and all that the law requires when we come in and through Christ and Paul continues to explain this says if you and this is uh, Romans ten nine 9-13 if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for the scripture says whoever believes on him will Will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all, Uh, same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, this idea that Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of the law, as the preaching of the gospel that we're actually quite familiar with. But it's the preaching of the gospel in the context of a jewish cultural norm and that jesus came to fulfill the law that all of the ancestors of 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 of, uh, abraham all since the giving of the law since moses received the law none of them were able to fulfill the law and here comes a king of righteousness all right the fulfillment of all of what the prophets and the law pointed to he fulfills the law but more than that he invites each and every person, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, to be joined to him and actually to be in him. And as Paul says in Romans, in Christ, we are fulfilled in the law. We fulfill the law, all right, because he fulfilled the law. Does that make sense? It presents a new way to obtain all of the promises of the old testament not through outward observance of law but through inward um, uh, uh, submission to jesus christ as lord so when he said when jesus said he's come not to abolish but the law but to fulfill him you know he wasn't talking about the fulfilling as like there was a cosmic checklist that i had to fulfill all these requirements all right he's already qualified He's saying, I fulfill the law. I bring it to its completion. And in and through me, you can fulfill the law. You can come into the fullness of what God intends in your relationship with Him and your relationship with one another through Christ because He is the fullness of the law for each and every person that accepts Him. All right? We have all that the law promised. We're saved made whole, that's what the word saved means, in Christ, in accepting Jesus as King, in accepting Him as Messiah, in accepting Him and seeing Him as the fulfillment, then He becomes our fulfillment. Does that make sense? And so uh, uh, Matthew presents Jesus in this way, but we need to understand that we need to accept Jesus in that way. We need to have that revelation that Peter had that, Paul, uh, that Matthew writes about. We need to uh, see uh, that Christ is the fulfillment of all that the all, uh, Old Testament um, uh, portrayed and, and promised. But it needs to be realized in your life. It needs to be realized in my life. And we do that through faith by accepting Him, by believing Him, and committing our lives to Him, and living for Him. That's what Matthew's about. We're going to dig into the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks to come. Aaron has some annu- announcements. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Pastor Cameron. I hope that whets your appetite for much more to come on the Sermon on the Mount. So yeah, I do have a